Welcome to Conversation Mill. Join me as I talk to individuals stepping out to pursue their passions, from small business owners to community leaders, and learn with me how we can work together to support our local communities and local economies. Visit conversationmill.com to learn more, but now please join us in conversation. Calling all history buffs, lovers of spirits and liqueurs, believers in sustainability, this is the episode for you. Vicario Micro Distillery and Farm, owned and operated by Renato Vicario and Jeanette Wesley, bring together the flavors of history alongside sustainable growing techniques. Like their liqueurs, Renato and Jan are a perfect blend that create a memorable experience. Whether you are on site for a tasting or in conversation like we are with them today, if you are in the upstate or visiting the upstate of South Carolina, I highly recommend you add a tour of their distillery to your agenda. Join us now in conversation. On the first page of the tasting book that you hand out when you do tastings, it says uh, the primary mission is to offer an outstanding tasting experience something your great grandmother would have been proud of. Can you tell us about your great grandmother and your grandmother and what it was like learning in the kitchen of your childhood home from them? Well, it was uh, kind of going back into, into it. It was kind of magical because great grandmother was the chef. Uh, Grandmother, she was the chemist. Mm. Uh, So she prepared uh, all of the syrups for my father's business. Uh, uh, he had a soda pop business. So he prepared all of that. So I learned from both sides. I learned how to use the gardens, therefore the herbs, and uh, how to compose them in order to obtain the taste that I wanted. So the combination of the mother and the daughter were really incredible. Oh, that is incredible. So what age did you start cooking with I, them? Well, I, I, I was always there helping mm-hmm. as far as I remember. And uh, I started making with my grandmother. She really started teaching me how to make liqueurs uh, mm-hmm. about 70 years ago, actually. Wow. So I was six years old. And here is this little toddler, you know, with the grandmother there trying to tell him what type of differences in the taste I wanted to obtain and so on. And uh, we were making enochino for the first time, a walnut liqueur. She was from the region that is famous actually for the enochino. So it became one of the classics uh, at home. And uh, when we had guests, we always had uh, uh, something. And actually it was tradition to have wine during the meal, of course, mm-hmm. and to have an after lunch or after dinner, uh, drink. So. And what was your, where was your hometown in what region of Italy is it? Uh, at the time uh, in Piedmont, uh, on Lake Maggiore, small town called Bavino, which is actually famous for the pink granite. Uh, the Watergate building mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C. was built with the granite from there, actually. Okay. <laughs> uh, the Cathedral of Brasilia was built with the granite from there. So it is a famous granite. Yeah. You wrote the book on liqueurs. Literally, you wrote Correct. a book on the history and the art of creating liqueurs. 
What fascinates you about that history? Uh, the history itself, how far back it goes, because basically it goes back to technically the beginning of time, the beginning of society, especially after the Second Crescent. That's when you have really the conglobation, the conglomeration of all of the different ethnic, the few mm. ethnic varieties that there were there, congregating in one point of the world where uh, it was easier to sustain yourself. And that really gave rise to civilizations and uh, to basically tending the soil. So that marks the point of uh, depart from being nomads to being mm -hmm. stable residents somewhere. So that is the beginning of uh, society, as, uh, as you want to call it. And were liqueurs then, at the first creation of liqueurs, were they being used as more medicinal digestives or were they being used as a social drink? Uh, all of those, all of the above, actually. There is not really a specific text that would tell you that far back exactly how it happened. But probably it's uh, hazardous, as in most cases, you know. Nature probably gave a little help. One of the first liqueurs probably was uh, a mead, mm. because uh, honey um, was available, obviously. The bees were there. And the only thing that you need to create the mead is to have enough water to water down basically the honey. The honey dissolved in water will start fermenting and that will create the mead. Now, the, the real changer there is the fact that men tasted it, you know, and someone was willing to see, oh, what's this? And let's taste it, you know. Then uh, the second other thing was uh, most of the water was not drinkable. Mm. obviously. Right. And uh, was tainted one way or the other. And uh, therefore, uh, you really needed uh, something to clean the water. And basically, the fermentation that happened there was used, uh, especially when you have the beginning of the production of wheat, uh, the old wheats, mm -hmm. obviously, you know. But uh, cultivation starts when, when the beginning of the society starts. The moment that you have cultivation, you have congregation of people and therefore preparation of liquids uh, that would better serve uh, the thirst of the population without impairing them. And then you get into the traditions like, for instance, uh, going back to the mead, uh, why do we call a honeymoon a honeymoon? You know, honeymoon, it's called specifically going back to those times because everybody participated in the creation of mead. When someone got married, they had a one-month leave, one moon, mm. uh, to go out and basically not having to work, okay? Because procreation of the species was more imperative, obviously. And uh, that created the honeymoon. So it was... Uh, in the moon, you didn't create the honey because uh, you were busy trying to impregnate your wife in order mm -hmm. to continue the, fa the family. Yeah, it's 
there. It's true. So that is basically all of those uh, little fragments uh, mm -hmm. that come up from uh, uh, Hammurabi's code. So Mesopotamia, you know, some of the Egyptian uh, codexes, basically, uh, even though codexes really is a term that it's used more for the South Central America, so for the Aztec type, Technically speaking, they are codexes. A codex, it's only a way of making things, a way of living, a way of doing things, okay? So they actually, from the Book of the Dead mm -hmm. uh, to the Book of the Living, which is basically all of uh, dedicated to Toth, so the god of medicine, and, uh, and medicine was very important, mm -hmm. obviously. Yeah, and... That's one thing that I learned on the tour about the digestive properties of liqueurs. Um, and that's why I was kind of ask, asking about were these used traditionally more in medicine versus maybe for entertainment. Um, but did those two things kind of blend like the medicinal and the entertainment uh, uh, purpose? Liqueurs started as a medicine. The entertainment was more uh, the beer and the wine. Mm -hmm. Uh, those were the social drinks. Beer especially, uh, that was part, really, of the pale people. So even uh, uh, when they were building the pyramids, you know, everybody thinks that it was slaves that built the pyramids. No, it wasn't. Uh, historically, we know that it was people that dedicated a period of time of the year to the pharaoh in order, because he was the representation of Ra, the sun god, and therefore it was like praying, it was like giving a donation to a church, exactly the same thing. But it was codified in the sense that once they decided to do that, they were paid X amount of gallons of beer per day. So beer was at the time not what we consider beer today, uh, it was a food as well, sure. and uh, therefore was really very much part of that. Medicines, instead, uh, has always been with the herbs, especially uh, there has always been a search for the bitterness of the herbs. So you can imagine as well, going back into time, um, how many thousands of people probably died to discover that something was poisonous or not poisonous, you know. We don't know who they were, but they existed, you know. And the tradition was always in the hand of uh, the women. And uh, the reason was because they were hunters, which was mostly the men, and the gatherers, that was mostly the women. And then sometimes uh, uh, it got blurred in between, you know, so both of them could participate. But were, what were the household chores at the time? The preparation of milk in order to make cheese. That was, uh, that was for the women. You know, yeah, and uh, in effect, it is cheese, for instance, is dedicated to Isis or what you would call Aphrodite, Venus, whatever it is, you know, so to a goddess because it's specifically for women. Uh, it's only now you, you can go back to the Ayurveda, so the Vega books in India, uh, uh, in Sanskrit, and they will refer to uh, quite a few of the gods that come down. They have so many gods and goddesses, yeah. okay? But Tulsi, for instance, Tulsi is uh, the basil, okay? 
And uh, so that is part of the tradition for getting married, because it's actually, it's an aphrodisiac. Technically speaking, the smell of it is. So everything was related to procreation, even there. Then uh, you continue into uh, what is today Iran, so the section of Mesopotamia and so on. So quite a lot uh, of uh, the first uh, mixtures were made there. They were all codified only between the 1000 and the end of the 1100s. And it was uh, actually because uh, of uh, the beginning of the wars of the Christian kings against the Muslims uh, in southern Spain that that originated, because most of the learned scientists of the period of time uh, were in Spain. Okay, and uh, there were uh, quite a lot of them actually were, um, you know, technically speaking, uh, the Persians. Okay, and uh, uh, one of them, especially uh, that came out uh, from Spain, settled uh, in southern Italy, what is now southern Italy in Salerno. At the time, um, that section was under Byzantium, so it was the Byzantine. The Byzantine didn't have any problems with any religion whatsoever, therefore they, are, they accepted everybody. So you always go back into history and see why something happened, why someone moved to a particular location versus another, and not look at what the place is today. So the school of Salerno, which was basically started at that period of time, Avicenna was uh, the name of the Persian uh, that wrote quite a lot of text and actually translated, fortunately, uh, quite a lot of the text uh, from uh, Sanskrit and Arabic into Latin. Mm-hmm. And uh, Latin I can read without any problem. So that's why it was easy uh, to find some of a lot of the things after that period of time. And even what we do actually comes from the School of Medicine of Salerno. And these were the medicines that were available until the end of the 1700s, because it's only with the beginning of the 1800s that you start having the medical discoveries, the scientific discoveries. And did you go back to some of those early like you just mentioned being able to read Latin, did you go back and study some of those oh, yeah. records of recipes to create the recipes you have uh, today? Yeah, well, it's actually the recipes are not recipes per, per se. Eventually, they become recipes as we know them today. But really, they are a series of, uh, uh, you use these for this particular ailment, these other thing for another ailment. You can combine them together. So you become the alchemist in a way, which is always attractive anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and you're using some rare or essentially endangered herbs and fruits. Uh, You mentioned a wild cherry tree that's on your farm in Tuscany, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, But you showed us a few other things here in your garden. Can you tell us about a couple of those rare herbs or fruits that you're using? Well, the only, the particular one, the cherry, is because uh, it's disappearing. Eventually, we know it will disappear. And uh, the reason that it grows only in the particular area where it grows, which happens where we have to have the house in Tuscany, is because that is the last segment uh, of uh, African crust that it's going under the European crust. 
So once that happens, uh, because of course there is an enlargement of the continents, therefore uh, Europe is actually dividing itself from the Americas little by little. It's only a few centimeters in a year, but uh, there are scuba expeditions, for, ist- for instance, in Iceland, where they register it and they can see how much we have moved further away, you know, from one continent to the other. Obviously, if you pull that way, it means that that crust has to go somewhere. And that crust, it's it's pulling above the African crust. So in 20, 30,000 years, obviously we're not going to be there, but eventually that tree will disappear. So it is on the endangered species. They try to grow it in other places. Now it likes only that particular type of soil and so on. Other ones, um, more than uh, really endangered species that we have are lots of plants that are little known. Mm. Uh, That is most of the time what happens actually. You take uh, the family of the mint. Uh, The mint has more than 7,000 species. You know, it's uh, it's in every continent there is, uh, and each one is different. Everybody knows peppermint. Peppermint, actually, is it indigenous to the European? Yes, it's in England. But peppermint doesn't grow in the Alps normally unless you put it there. So someone had taken the peppermint from England to put back in the Alps. And there it starts, of course, different climate, different section of the Alps, different soil, and it started having a variation. Or you take what we call the Roman mint. Uh, uh, It's fantastic because uh, that grows along the creeks uh, and it has a powerful, incredible smell. But the Roman mint goes well with meat only. You wouldn't use it in a tea, for instance, but for cooking meat is fantastic. Yeah. So fascinating. And here in your on your farm in Greer, South Carolina, and in Tuscany, you're growing in a sustainable way without pesticides, without chemicals. Correct. Why was that so important to you? Uh, first of all, because uh, you're not changing the taste of the vegetable. Every time that you use something, a chemical especially, uh, the simple fact that you plant something in one type of soil and in another type, they will grow differently. Uh, if you were to eat uh, a pork steak, you know, a pork chop, and uh, on, uh, even though it's uh, very well uh, fed or whatever, but uh, if you are feeding uh, the pig with products of ear, it was going to be tasting different than if it is fed with products in Italy. So that alone gives you what a differential it is. Therefore, not to add anything into the taste is vital in order to preserve really uh, the cleanliness of what you want to represent. It's like uh, you take our mint, okay? We call it, there is not a thing as black mint. It's called black mint because it's a type of peppermint that grows. It has a, it's darker than the regular peppermint. That's why it's called black. And it grows only at certain height. It's just the structure of it that is so powerful that uh, it doesn't have it. You take another peppermint and one doesn't taste of anything nearly in comparison to the other. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to change 
that uh, level of perception. And therefore, if you spray, you would. That's one of the reasons that, especially where we are, would be very difficult to make good wine. Because in order to grow the vitis vinifera, the real vine for, for grapes, uh, uh, you would have to cover it in so many products in order to stop fungicide, especially, you know, which are basically, first of all, detrimental to your health. And they get absorbed by the fruit, the vegetable, and therefore, especially when you're using a solvent like alcohol, the solvent will take out everything. It will take out the bad along with the good. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you cannot do that. What natural things are you doing to prevent you know, pest infestation? Well, this one, I would have to refer to her because she has the green thumb. But basically, you're using companion planting and uh, and studying really the soil. Uh, We also use, um, we plant companion plants, which basically are plants that help the other plant in one way or another. Um, they will attract beneficial insects. Um, so we plant a lot of native plants. Um, for example, there's um, a native coreopsis um, that's all along the pathway in front of the French tarragon, the cardoons, the lemon verbena. Um, and that will attract a um, native wasp. It's a small wasp that um, eats a lot of aphids. Um, we also put up uh, ladybug houses. Um, those also eat aphids. Um, and various other um, flowering plants that are native here that still attract things that eat insects. Um, so we do that. Um, and then there are times when uh, a plant will get devoured by some little bug. And we're okay with that. Mm-hmm. We just, um, we cut it off. Price you pay. We, mm-hmm. we let it go and, and no problem. So um, we just, we won't use any kind of, insecticides and fungicides are very oily and they will really get pulled into the, um, the maceration, into the extraction mm-hmm. of the, they, they're saying normally in agriculture, they say, oh, we will stop spraying uh, uh, three weeks or a month before picking the fruit. It doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. It's inside. Mm-hmm. It's already there. On the same theme of sustainability, the labels for your bottles are created by choosing an image from the painting by Bosch called The Garden of Earthly Delights. That painting was created between... 1490 and 1510. The painting is a warning of what's to come if we keep treating the earth the way we're treating it. What, I mean, it's very clear connection, kind of what drew you to that painting, but was that a painting you already knew about? And so as soon as you started this, it connected. And can you tell us a little bit about that painting from both your perspectives and and what it means to you? Well, I'm, I'm an artist by trade, um, I love art history, and so we did choose this painting. Um, when Renato was writing his book on Italian liqueurs, I was the one who selected the artwork for the book, and this was one of the paintings that we selected for the book, and so I had previously really looked at it, really observed it. And when you observe it, it just has so many beautiful um almost futuristic 
very modern images of people, animals, strange beings. And it, it was just really, um, it fit a lot with the mythology and the ideas of the liqueurs. So we chose that primarily because it does have this message of a warning that we had paradise, we're squandering it, let's not scorch the earth. Um, and so it does fit with that mission, but also because it's just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. It has so many um, fabulous um, little details that most people don't ever pay any attention to. And so when you put them on a label, people will actually look at a little piece of the art. It's in a different arrangement. We've um, recollaged different pieces, so they do become somewhat unique, but still all directly from that particular painting. Do you know what the artist communicated about that painting? I mean, besides just painting it, did he have any conversation around it? The time that it was painted, was there conversation about it? My guess, and it's just a guess, is it was much more religious than um, a, a dire warning about the environment, because I don't think that they really thought about that back in the 1500s. Um, the painter was Dutch, and the Dutch about that same time were involved in a reformation of Protestantism. And so therefore, they went away from uh, religious paintings like we think of, such as Jesus on the cross or various things, uh, replications from biblical stories. Mm -hmm. And they went to, there was a lot of development of still life. The still life in the Dutch paintings was generally there to remind people that there's life and death because every time that you would look at a still life there's a little piece of fruit that had just started to rot correct um and there the was also fly. a little bug generally flying around whether it was a moth or a fly or whatever it was but it was there to remind people that life is short and uh to always keep that in mind so beautiful the the artwork on the bottle is is just beautiful i don't think you could have picked a better painting to highlight kind of the vision and the mission of what you guys are doing. Thank you. It was just the right one. It, yeah. It was just the it right It represented one. <laughs> exactly what we were feeling, mm -hmm. what we wanted. Now, if you, if somebody came to you and said, what are the top three things I should consider if I want to start farming um, sustainably, or I want to get into growing things, whether it's herbs or, or vegetables sustainably, what are the top three things you would tell them start here before you jump? I would say before you buy a piece of land or you choose a piece of land, you examine the amount of rainfall in that area, um, because that will determine what you can and can't grow. If you have access to water or, um, well water what however you want um you probably don't want to put chlorinated water on your plants um and then to look at the soil because that will the soil is always at the crux of everything uh, so you may or may not need to amend it and then of course your climate all of these things are the, the top three the you know how cold does it get in the winter how warm does it get in the summer how humid is it in the summer 
Um, what can you grow there? What zone are you in? Um, there are a lot of things like that. And it also depends on what you want to grow, what type of things you want to do. Now with us, we're doing various herbs. There are certain things we can't grow. We know that. So therefore we do buy some of our herbs. When we buy them, we try to get the best quality we possibly can, certified organic when we can, certified fair trade if we can. So when somebody starts to think about sustainability, you have to think about your place, your sense of place first. And what are some of the challenges, the different challenges between here in Greer, South Carolina and what you're experiencing on your farm in Tuscany? Well, back to the same thing, the place. Um, we have a very different soil there, very different. It's similar climate, but it's not similar in a lot of ways. You don't have the humidity. You don't have, generally speaking, you don't have extreme temperatures. This summer was an exception. Um, so the soil is the main thing, the type of plants, the, the breezes, it, it's all slightly different. Well, it's like uh, on our land in Italy, uh, we have really technically two different types of soil and they're drastically different. One is tertiary period, so that is basically uh, the erogenous period of time, the formation of the Alps and the Apennines, so there is a lot more uh, mineral, a lot more uh, rock that comes out. And then another section is quaternary period. So basically, this is movement of the earth again, but uh, this has pushed up the seas, or better, pushed up the land uh, that used to be the bottom of the sea. Therefore, you, you have uh, marnic, more uh, a sand uh, to clay-like structure. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is why we basically have uh, Sangiovese on one side and Cabernet Franc on the other, because it takes advantage of the different minerality of the soil. And you can have a difference every three feet yeah. in soil. So you have to test a lot. Um, soil is very, very important. In the old days, I remember my grandfather, because uh, my family has always been in the winemaking, so you go out, you want to grow vines, you grow out and taste the soil. And the soil will tell you uh, what, it, what type of soil it is. Uh, especially, you have to remember, uh, being a person from Piedmont, there because first of all you had uh, Piedmont, uh, or, or better, the mountains that are at the end of Piedmont is the end of the glacier, so the moraine. And therefore, a lot of minerals that were pushed down, you know. And then quite a lot of different upheavals, obviously, uh, through the millions of years, you know, the changes, the push-up of the Alps, the push-up of the Apennines, the formation of the Padana Plain, because uh, the Padana Plain did not get formed in one day. It took millions of years for, for the rivers to bring down all of the debris that would form uh, the plane and how mineral that is. Are so. you completing the process of making the liqueurs here in South Carolina or are you also completing the process in Italy? No, we, we make everything them, yeah. here. Okay. Yeah. So are you shipping any product from your farm there here? Correct. The product gets shipped under alcohol 
and it's a single product. So, for instance, the cherries uh, get put under alcohol there, the artichokes get put under alcohol there. So they're shipped here, there is no problem, it's our product. And uh, if you have only one thing inside the alcohol, then it's, uh, it's actually um, something that has not been finished and can be terminated over a year. Now, if I remember correctly from the tasting, the olive leaf liqueur, you guys are currently the only ones in the world making that one? Correct. That, that we you know, know of, of, yes. Wow. So can you talk to me a little bit about that liqueur without giving away any special <laughs> sauce? Because it was delicious and I recommend everyone pick it up because it's amazing. But what... What makes that so unique that you might be the only one making it? Uh, well, it's not what makes it so unique. It is, I started when I was writing the book on the Italian liqueurs, uh, looking back at a lot of the ancient books, all the Latin books and so on. There were quite a lot of references actually to this liqueur. Uh, that was made at the time it was not made with alcohol uh, as we know today it was made with wine obviously because uh, the traditional Greek and Latins didn't like uh, um, they knew about distillation but they didn't like straight alcohol they were really wine countries and they loved their wine and wine potentially is very good you have to leave it in maceration a lot longer than with spirit but I you can do it but anyway I was reading about all of these references and it really kind of piqued my curiosity. I wanted to find out more. Why did it disappear? And basically it disappeared with uh, the end of the Roman Empire. We don't know why or whatever. Probably because of the, ad uh, the advent of uh, Christianism. Uh, it because this was a special liqueur that was produced and given to the pilgrims that went to the temple of Jupiter Apennine in the Apennine Mountains. So obviously when you have the end of paganism, probably that was the crucial moment when that stops uh, uh, being visited, obviously, and therefore there is not in, any longer the continuation of that. Uh, so I tried to find as, as much information as possible and uh, I was able to piece together some, some elements, whatever they were talking, because sometimes they were writing, uh, even though they were not preparing the liqueur per se, they, they were writing about what they had been told by pilgrims that went up there, or they used this, or they used that, you know, etc. It's obvious that you have to think about what was produced at the time. You're, you're thinking back at about at least 60 years before Christ, okay? So what was produced there? Uh, what was available? Uh, was citrus fruit already available? You know, you have all, those are all the questions that you have to ask yourself. And then you put together the recipe. And that's what I did. One of the things that, as our progress happened, we were just simply making liqueurs at home. And it got to the point, especially in Italy, where um, inviting friends over, everybody just looked forward to the the end, <laughs> even though the cooking was fabulous, I have to say, Renato is a great cook. Um, but we made lots of different liqueurs at home. So we had a collection of many, 
I won't even a lot more dare than to what say we make many. here. So um, the olive leaf started out as homemade product, and many of the liqueurs all over Italy um, are that way. It, their traditions have been passed down by the grandmothers or the grandfathers. Somebody in the household has been making a special recipe. Um, and it's very possible that in some household there is an olive leaf liqueur because it was, you know, a, a tradition. As far as we know, um, commercially, we don't know of any other, especially in the States, that is making an olive leaf liqueur. However, the, the old recipes, um, and this is one of the reasons why I encouraged Renato to write the book on Italian liqueurs, so many of these older people were dying out in the families, and along with them, these ideas for their traditional family uh, liqueurs. So there was a small bar in Cortona where we used to go. They used to make some special liqueur that the grandmother made. We went in one day and they didn't have it anymore. And I said, oh, what happened to that wonderful liqueur you used to make? Oh, well, grandmother died and nobody else knows how to make it. She didn't write anything down. She just knew how to make it. So I told him at that point, I said, somebody needs to write this information down because one day people are, the younger generation is going to come along and they're going to want to make these things that they're great-grandmother or grandmother used to make a long time ago. And so he got busy writing the book, and, uh, and that's kind of how the progress happened um, after the book came the business. So, yeah. I think that's kind of what's really fascinating about what you guys are doing. It's, it's multi-layered, so not only is it uh, liqueurs from sustain- sustainably grown herbs and fruits, you have this history piece that kind of makes the whole experience. It just adds so much to it, especially like during the tasting. And you both know so much about the origins, a lot of, of a lot of these items and the history behind it, what it was used for previously. It's not just coming here to be like, I'm going to indulge in some spirits or, you know, toast to something, but it's, it's a history lesson too. And a lot of history that is overlooked or is not deemed relevant to maybe modern day problems, but, but it is, and it's especially relevant to farming and how Mm -hmm. our food has changed and how, how we consume alcohol has changed. I think that history piece, um, and preserving that history is what makes you guys so extremely unique. And I, I, for one, am very thankful for it because I love history. So I think our listeners will be thankful well, for it Well, it's as well. part everything as uh, a historical section and everybody looks for it, definitely. And uh, just that these traditions have even a longer one. Uh, they go back into the, <laughs> in the fog of times, you know, basically. So you're looking at, uh, for instance, uh, the use of certain herbs. When they found Ötztli, uh, this is a mummy of a caveman, so 6,500 years before Christ. Uh, this guy was walking around a crevice uh, in the mountains, in the Alps, and he fell down. And it was covered by ice, you know, and it stayed there all of these thousands of years, you know. Now with the melting of the glacier and the push of the glacier, of course, uh, they found this mummy. 
the mummy is actually at the Museum of Bolzano in northern Italy. And they did study the mummy because it was very well preserved. First of all, it was dressed completely in the style of the time, obviously. And uh, in his pocket, he still had uh, uh, what he had to eat or to take or whatever. And they found a herb uh, that is, uh, it's a gentian, uh, the white gentian, gentiana lutea, in his pocket. And they were wondering why. And then when they did the autopsy on the mummy, they found out that he had a stomach ailment and uh, the gentian was a cure for that. That was 6,500 years before Christ. Incredible. Well, really incredible. Out of the 14 liqueurs you have currently, each of you individually, what is your favorite at the end of a day to, to enjoy? It really varies, but I have to say that probably the Mirto uh, and uh, the Quintessence are our two favorites, right? Uh, the, quint uh, the quintessence is the, the amaro. Mm. Yeah, the, it's the amaro. It's the digestive. The mirto is uh, what I call a meditation drink. So it's it's a combination of various things because it has uh, uh, this resinous aroma that comes mm. from one particular plant only, uh, which is really a mix between a rosemary, juniper, bay leaf, you know, which is intriguing in a way. And uh, that type of taste, actually, even though it has sugar in it, because otherwise it wouldn't be uh, a liqueur, but the sugar disappears immediately. The sweetness disappears immediately. And we always use a very low amount of sugar anyway. And uh, after that uh, sugary uh, disappearance, you, you have this incredibly very long taste, uh, which is... Uh, resinous but very pleasant mm -hmm. uh, it's like having in a way um, I, I know that lots of people don't like for instance some of the uh, scotch from the islands of Scotland because it's very peaty you know it has more like sometimes it's like drinking bitumen you know or something sure. like that uh, like an old Lathraig or something uh, similar it has the same effect. It has that particular resinous taste that remains with you and lingers on your tongue for a long time. So you really feel like, okay, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to rest a moment, and I'm going to ponder, you know. I love that. It also depends on what you've had for dinner yeah. or, you know, <laughs> um, what mood you're in. The cherry is wonderful with a piece of chocolate. I love the coffee if I just need a little pickup. Correct. Uh, the Monk's Secret is extraordinarily long and deep. So if you just want to breathe a little bit, that's mm. a nice one. Correct. So they all have a lot of different merits um, between cooking, drinking, enjoying mixing and in, in cocktails well each one was thought about on its own so it happened to be a series of them because uh, altogether now if we include the gin uh, within a couple of months we're going to have uh, what 19 liqueurs hmm? 18 18 yeah no 18 liqueurs plus the gin right that's right yeah and then we also make a grappa and a brandy Okay, and do you make that here or do you that's, make that, that in That is Italy? made in Italy, okay. but from our 
and vineyards. I want to ask you about your home there in Tuscany. I read that you purchased and restored a thousand-year-old presbytery. Presbytery? Correct. Talk to us about that process. Had you known about this property and you... Uh, We didn't know about the property, but uh, we were looking for a place. We were looking for a small apartment. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, a little different. (laughs) We were looking for a small apartment to go and uh, spend a few months of the year, you know, just on vacation. And then, uh, um, so we were going with two different people looking at different things. And uh, we met at lunchtime, usually got back and... uh, uh, check with each other the notes that we took, etc., etc. So uh, this particular day, we meet, and she says, "I shouldn't take you there because I know that if I take you there, we we will have to buy." <laughs> and we did. <laughs> it was just one of those things that speaks to you and says, "You have to do this." It's like you arrive there, and it's like the old. It's you had the feeling of someone saying, finally, you made it here. And it's a home that um, is really extraordinary, but we don't feel like the owners. We just feel like we're... The stewards. We're just a caretaker in this period of time because it's been there so long, and um, it's made it through a lot of history that we can't even possibly imagine. Well, the first church that was built there was built in 345. Wow. Okay, 345. So that was still during the persecutions of the Christians, okay? And uh, dedicated to Santa Cristina, and she was one of the first uh, Christians to be uh, martyrized, basically. This has not been proven, proven, but we are very... Suspicious that it was on well. Our that's uh, they, wow. They have a there lot was of a local a local priest uh, uh, that really uh, had access to it. It was uh, an historian, really, and he had access to a lot of uh, the historical papers uh, that are in the curia. The curia is where the archbishop is. And uh, therefore, they are not common property. It's not that they are in a regular library or whatever. And uh, he had gone quite a few times to the Vatican as well, because the Vatican, of course, has an old repository of everything that happened, because uh, at one time, uh, the census books, technically, were not kept uh, by the city. They were kept by the church, Mm. because uh, you paid your taxes to the church. And therefore, once a year, you had someone from the church coming out, counting the heads, just like it happens now with the censors, basically. Okay. And uh, uh, so he wrote about it, and uh, he had found out we, more. We dug up every piece of uh, information that we could, and so there are still lots of things that we know and we don't know. A friend of mine had a father-in-law that worked in the um, courthouse in Cortona who actually found a court case of a person who lived in the the house in the 1300s, I believe. Um, And he was being accused of sodomizing a donkey. Oh, wow. So that was interesting. <laughs> but it's incredible. Yeah. Wow. But so it's, it's a very old house. You have to adore old houses. 
to live there all the time because there are things that you just can't change. It's um, it's on the historical records. You can't just you know, it's a national monument down. actually because. Uh, uh, the where we have the garden, the small garden where we grow all the vegetables and everything, not the extension around, but that was uh, the Lazzaretto. So it was uh, the hospital for leper women in central Italy from 800 to the 1300s. And uh, so that's where they lived. Okay. And that's why the church, and basically they lived near the church, they had an underground passage where our kitchen is. Uh, you can see that actually this is where an arch finishes, so there is quite a lot underneath uh, in the cellar. And uh, that was basically a chapel that uh, um, the leper women could come in without mixing with the rest of the people, could just attend Mass without mixing in. Sure. So it has a lot of beautiful properties, these big, huge chestnut beams, and of course it's all in stone, which does mean that if you go in the wintertime, the, the wind just kind of blows right, <laughs> Comes right through. Yeah, even though the walls are that size. You yeah, know? But, but it's a beautiful place. Uh, and then going around, it's like a different time of the day. One time I remember we were looking because we had a small cemetery as well. Uh, but looking at the stone, say, oh, look at that stone. And you go a different angle with the light, say, oh, this is an Etruscan inscription. So basically... <laughs> You know, and it's like that. You go down, and we still have uh, 300 meters of uh, old Roman road. Mm. What you a know. remarkable property. It's, it is. It's beautiful. <laughs> so and we're it's... doing the next podcast there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what, when you then purchase the property, I mean, it had to be a little intimidating of setting up shop there where did you start did you have to was there any process of restoring anything or oh, yeah. was it w what we bought it in april and uh we wanted to invite everybody for a new year's eve uh, it was the turn of the millennium 1999 sure uh, so we invited everybody for New Year's Eve, and a good friend of mine uh, in Italy was an architect, and uh, he took care of, he supervised the work uh, to do, and uh, we were able to invite it, lots it of people. It wasn't one of those properties where the roof had already caved in. There was a lady and um, a gentleman who lived there. Um, it still needed a lot of updating. Yeah. The, the plumbing hadn't been done since the 40s. Uh, there was no insulation whatsoever. The windows, of course, needed to be... So there was a pain. lot of things to yeah. do. But it was, it was not like some I've seen that basically had to be rebuilt completely. Mm. Um, but it the was, structure was solid. It was definitely yeah. challenging. <laughs> Tell us about the local community there, because this podcast is really focused on community and small businesses and, and what people are doing and then contributing back to the community. Tell us a little bit about the community there. So Cortona, I went there as a student. I was a, um, a newly single mom 
who had three small children. And I was just absolutely embraced by the Courtenese people. They helped me watch my kids as they meandered through the streets and went to buy groceries at the local shop. They're just wonderful, wonderful people. Um, we've made some very, very dear friends there. In fact, it's basically our second home. Um, so Cortona has changed over the years. A lot of people um, discovered it after the writing of Under the Tuscan Sun, which was a book by Francis Mays that um, really opened the world to Cortona. <laughs> um, so there are a lot of new shops, this, that, and the other, but there's still this the core is still there. Really good core people there who are just the salt of the earth. And that was one of the things that I was so attracted about going back and returning and returning was it just felt a lot like home and it felt a lot like Greenville when I grew up here. Um, people cared about each other. There, there were adults next door who watched out for you. If you were getting in trouble, your parents knew. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... It was it was a really good place. Um, both both places really just genuinely caring individuals. And from the point of view of the businesses, they uh, they were the traditional businesses were still existing. Uh, you could still go and have uh, a pair of shoes made. Uh, you could go and get uh, a you know uh, a whatever you needed in the house made as you wanted, you know. The so, food and vegetable stands yeah. are just, you know, right out of somebody, you know, right down the street. Local wine was there. It, yeah. it was just a really the, uh, the Thursday, on Thursday, there is the market, the general market, where everybody comes in, you know, so from 7 o'clock, 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning till 1 o'clock. But you arrive there, you go... Uh, to the uh, the fishmonger, and you have uh, fifty varieties of mm. fish available, fresh from the coast, because we are halfway exactly from both coasts. You know, right. <laughs> so uh, there is the guy that comes up from the area of Salerno with the fresh mozzarella. Mm -hmm. It takes three hours to drive from there. So they, they leave at four o'clock in the morning, right after the first mozzarella is made. They are there at seven and you have it still fresh because mozzarella should not be eaten if it's more than eight hours old, you know, technically. There's local butchers who raise their own animals, who make their own salamis and it's just, I mean, you want to have pasta, there is Lorena just down the road, small place, but she makes all the pasta that you want, all the different types. Mm -hmm. She serves all the restaurants of the area, actually, and very good pasta. Do you see in Italy more of that culture still existing of knowing who's making your bread, knowing who's making your pasta, knowing who's growing flowers that are going on your table. We are having a resurgence in some of our communities here in the U.S. Greenville is a great example. Traveler's Rest is a great example. Greer has kind of picked up um, some of those things as well. So there's a lot of little communities here doing that, but it's not as 
common. It's still like a, oh, you went to the farmer's market and got all that, but I can't go on a regular day to maybe that farm and go right to their farm stand or go downtown and go right to a baker. There are exceptions, but we're still overcoming the Walmarts, the targets versus the knowing who's baking your bread. Well, uh, it's a slight, slightly dif- a difficult answer to give because we have both. We actually have, depending on where we are and where you are in Italy. Uh, remember that Italy is one of the countries in the world, in the world with the lowest natality rate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there are a lot more people dying than being born mm-hmm. in a year. Uh, therefore, we used to be 65 million uh, in the 60s, and now we are 58, 59. Uh, and that is uh, including the millions of people that <laughs> came into, you right. know, coming from Africa or from Eastern Europe or whatever. Therefore, there was a period of time when uh, uh, the old uh, ways nearly disappeared. You know, I grew up in that transitional period where the old ways were still there because we still had, we didn't have any food, basically, because when the German army left, there wasn't anything there, basically. So you learn to go up in the mountains and, like Mao said, eat the mountains, you Mm. know, Uh, forage, Mm -hmm. meaning forage yourself out of nature or whatever. Uh, I remember that as a kid, we used to go up in the mountains uh, and the mountains were alive, definitely, you know. Uh, There was the uh, transient people, transient meaning only they they went up with uh, animals for the season and they could be either cows or pigs or sheep or whatever. They spent the summer in the mountain, came down. Every week uh, they came down with the cheeses that they were making or whatever, you know. Uh, That disappeared nearly completely. Uh, After basically the 1950s, people didn't want to go up in the mountains anymore. Uh, It was a lot easier to go and work uh, in a city and go to a restaurant. And now instead there is a coming back of that, the younger generation. And we noticed it actually when uh, we were doing quite a lot of uh, uh, speaking about the book uh, at various uh, uh, locations from museums to universities, uh, that actually you had that big gap. All the people attending were either the older people who knew what you were talking about or the very young people that wanted to know there was nothing in between, you remember? Speaking on from an American perspective, yeah. I see both sides. Um, you had um, these small bread shops, pasta shops. A lot of that still remains very, very intact in small towns. And the one thing that I notice about most Italians is they care more about taste then they care necessarily about price. Now, price is also very important, but uh, if they can get a fresh-made piece of bread at the local baker, they'll take their time and go there and get it, rather than just trying to wish, go through the grocery store, pick up everything you need and get out. Mm -hmm. So it's important. The taste is very important. 
um, in the Italian culture, the way things are made. Um, it's a lot better to have a small amount of very good stuff. Mm. And, but even in some of the grocery stores, the food, the food quality is quite good, I have to say. They've kind of transferred that small shop mentality to some of the stores, which is um, pretty pretty yeah. interesting. And specifically, there is one chain, which is the oldest chain of stores in, in Italy. It's actually older than Italy because uh, it started before Italy was formed as a nation. Uh, and, and it's called Co-op. And it started as a cooperative. So basically all different producers that came together in order to have the same marketing outlets and so on. And they've kept their quality very, very high. In effect, they have a special line uh, that's the very top of the quality that you can find. To kind of wrap up today, guys, I, I we sat down and had a conversation about what you're doing with your business. And I'd love to hear who each of you, if you had an opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with, who would you choose to sit down and have a conversation with? And it can be somebody from history. It can be somebody living. If you could um, sit down and... It's an interesting question, incredibly difficult Very because difficult. it really depends uh, on on the, it depends on the mood of the day, what you had for lunch or dinner. <laughs> <laughs> it, it could be anybody. Uh, it really is depending on what it is. There are some days that I wish I was able to speak to some to Avicenna, for instance, you know, to talk about uh, uh, for the liqueurs. There are some other days that I wish I could speak more to, to my grandmother, mm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, I wanted to know even more, you know, mm -hmm. where she came from or whatever. I it's would probably second that. I would probably go back to some of my ancestors, especially some of those who actually came from Europe to the United States and ask, what was it like? You know, what compelled you to pack up everything you had, if it was much, and get on a boat and go to a faraway place where you would never see any of your family again, I would really like to have a conversation with those people. And because I can't imagine how extraordinary their story must be. Was there anything that we didn't touch on today that you would like our listeners to know about yourselves, your brand, what you're doing. We'd just like to invite you to come and visit us. If yeah. you would like to actually taste some things, we would be learn, learn more from the source. Yeah. I would highly encourage our listeners to do that too, because it was just such a joy coming here and doing the tour and tasting. I mean, I've been bragging about it to all my friends that I run into. So um, I'll hopefully send some people your way. Thank, Thank you guys you. so much for taking the time to <laughs> do you. this. You can learn more about Vicario. You can learn more about Vicario from the link in our show notes. Renato's book, Italian Liqueurs, History and Art of Creation can be You can learn more about Vicario at the link in our show notes. Renato's book, Italian Liqueurs, History and Art of a Creation, can be purchased on site at their micro distillery. 
Renato's book, Italian Liqueurs, History and Art of a Creation, can be purchased on site at their micro distillery and farm or through M. Judson Booksellers in Greenville, South Carolina. Or through M. Judson Booksellers in Greenville, South Carolina. Thank you again to Renato and Jan for joining us in conversation today. Friends of the podcast, thank you for listening in to another community conversation. Conversation Mill podcast is growing quickly and booking guests from all around the country. To continue to expand on our conversations, we need your help. Please like, comment, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This extends our reach to new listeners, which increases our ability to visit and invite guests you want to hear from. You can also support the podcast by becoming a member of Conversation Mill on Substack at conversationmill.substack.com. For only $5 a month, you will get exclusive content from our episodes, access to member-only episodes, not to mention the essays and other media uploaded weekly. And as always, thank you for listening to Conversation Mill and being a part of our community. Don't forget to follow Conversation Mill on Instagram for episode previews and join Conversation Mill at conversationmill.substack.com for additional chats with our guests, entrepreneurship tips, leadership training, and member-only content. And as always, thank you for listening to Conversation Mill and being part of our community.